0: But gladness requires no special talent or ability. <clears throat> gladness is not something that can be learned, and because of that is also something that cannot be taught. No one has ever sought to achieve academic status in the subject of gladness nor has anyone graduated with a certificate or a degree In the same person may be certifiably happy, not certifiably, you know what, certifiably legitimately happy, really, not putting on a front, they're just always happy. Uh, But that's not a trait that will guarantee them financial success or even will it contribute to their financial gain. No one has ever been honored or received an award simply for being glad. I can tell you I'd rather be around a glad person than around a sad person or even a mad person. But I can tell you that there are many benefits, especially to the righteous, to the redeemed, uh, for achieving that state of mind and heart being glad psalms 118 24 says this is the day which the lord hath made we will rejoice and be glad in it not in the things that may transpire during the day but we will be glad because god made the day it belongs to him and he allowed us to wake up and enjoy this day Now that you know what we're going to talk about today, I'd like us to begin our journey, Uh, and it will begin in a very unlikely place. The place of which I speak is the non-sequential spot on the road that was somewhere between Moab and Bethlehem, Judah, where Naomi chose to rest from her journey. Uh, Perhaps because some of you may not be that familiar with the story, we will give you a little uh, backstory to what we're going to talk about. Naomi and her husband, Elimelech, and her two sons, they departed from Bethlehem, Judah, 10 years prior to this uh, because there was famine in the land. This probably occurred around 1130 BC at the same time that the Midianites. Uh, had, had uh, infiltrated Israel and were stealing their crops. The people were starving. This is when Gideon received a call from God to rise up and to lead 300 men against them. But while they were in Moab, uh, Naomi's two sons, Maelon and Chilion, uh, met two young, beautiful Moabite girls, and they got married. Sometime thereafter, this story goes, Elimelech died, and then Chilion died, and Malon died as well. And so uh, Ruth was left without her husband and without her sons, but she had inherited now two daughters-in-law, one by the name of Ruth and the other by the name of Orpah. If I make a mistake and say, Oprah, it's just a mistake. It's Orpah, okay? But hearing that the famine is over, Naomi decides that she is going to now return to uh, Bethlehem, Judah. And somewhere along the way, probably just speculating not very far from Moab, and she stops to rest. And she begins to think that it would be best if her two daughters in law, Orpah and Ruth, would just go back to Moab and live there instead of going on to Bethlehem, Judah with her. So she says to them, Go return, each of you, to your mother's house. The Lord deal kindly with you as ye have dealt with the dead and with me. She said, The Lord grant you that ye may find rest, each of you, in the house of your husband. Naomi then affectionately kisses Ruth and Orpah, and both of them lifted up their voice and wept. They wept because of Naomi suggesting that they depart from her. Determined to go with Naomi, uh, they made their appeal, and they said to her, Surely we will return with thee unto thy people. Naomi, however, was persistent. She continued to urge them to return to Moab, uh, in which time the Bible says they lifted up their voice and they wept again. But as they wiped the tears from their eyes, the Bible says that Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth cleaved unto her. In other words, Orpah kisses Naomi, and then she sadly begins to make her way back to Moab, while Ruth was unyielding, cleaving ever harder to her mother-in-law. The word cleave here is the same word that's used in Genesis 2.24, where it says, Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife. Now, some people make uh, misread that and they believe that the husband cleaves the wife. That's not what it says. That would, be, that would end the marriage. The word cleave is a very strong word, and it means that, that, uh, that Ruth had a very firm grip on what had become her purpose in life, and she was not about to let it go or to let Naomi go, no matter what Naomi said. Even though the focus of her affection said, Ruth, go back to Moab, Ruth refused to do so kind of reminds me of the grip that Jacob had on the angel of the Lord when uh, the Lord told him, Jacob, let me go. And Jacob said, I will not let you go until you bless me. But it should be noted that even after Orpah's departure and with Ruth's firm and unyielding grip upon Naomi, Naomi continued to try to convince Ruth to go back to Moab. It's written for us in Ruth, the first chapter, verses 15 through 17. And she said, Behold, thy sister-in-law has gone back unto her people and unto her gods. Return thou after thy sister-in-law. Ruth said, Entreat me not to leave thee or to return from following after thee. For whither thou goest, I will go. And where thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people, and thy God my God. Where thou diest, will I die, and there will I be buried. The Lord do so to me, and more also, if aught but death, part thee and me. Ruth's undying commitment to Naomi reveals the depth of love and devotion that she had for her mother-in-law. She had no idea what lifestyle would be like in Bethlehem, Judah. She knew nothing about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And yet, she loved Naomi so much, she was willing to accept whatever came down the road. The next three chapters of the book of Ruth, as Paul Harvey would say, tell the rest of the story. It's been alluded to recently about Ruth. Ruth would go on to meet a man by the name of Boaz, which turned out to be a kinsman redeemer. And she would end up marrying this man and end up in the lineage through which the Messiah would be born. Henceforth, Ruth became part of the royal and sacred bloodline of Jesus Christ. This little girl from Moab gave birth to Obed. I know many of you know this already. Obed gave birth to Jesse, and then Jesse gave birth to David, which means that Ruth was the great-great-grandmother of King David. Now, we know a lot about Ruth, what happened to her, and so on. But the question is, whatever happened to Orpah? What happened to that Orpah that kissed her mother-in-law and with tears in her eyes turned her back upon Bethlehem Judah and walked back in to Moab? If you're expecting me to answer the question, you will be disappointed today because after Orpah kissed Naomi and began her descent back to Moab, she is never heard from again. She is never heard. Heard from again. Her name does not appear anywhere in the scriptural lexicon after that moment. She walked away into spiritual obscurity and virtually disappears from the biblical and from the historical landscape. Somewhere between the world that she was leaving behind and the world that she was going to, Arpa was persuaded to turn around and go back. But I wonder how many precious apostolic believers like Orpah have turned around and walked away from God never to be heard from again. Perhaps somebody is watching online that's turned around and walked away from God. You're getting close now by watching this service. But the next thing you need to do is to walk in the doors of this apostolic church and give your life back to God. I've heard people say, I left the church. I didn't leave God. That is virtually impossible. You cannot do that. I also wonder how many apostolic men, women, boys, and girls are at this very moment standing in the exact same place as Orpah contemplating a decision that will have eternal ramifications. Every prodigal that ever walked out of the doors of the apostolic community of an apostolic church, they contemplated this before they ever left the kingdom of God. But I'm here to tell you, God loves you anyway. (laughs) You may wonder, and uh, I wouldn't uh, argue with you if you did, What this has to do with gladness. The fact of the matter is it has everything to do with gladness. Because nobody ever got up and walked away from God who was happy in their relationship. Nobody ever got up and walked out of the doors of the church there was a happy Christian that was glad about their salvation. That was glad about the blood of Jesus Christ. That was glad they were baptized in his name and had received the Holy Ghost. Nobody ever got up and walked out of a state dinner. And it was perfectly cooked just like they wanted that filet mignon, just like they loved it. And they never got up and said, I love that so much, I'm going to walk out of this restaurant and not
1: finish my meal. It could be said that
0: Orpah did not know what she was given up, and this may be true. But the same can also be said about those that have walked away from God. It could also be said about those that walked away from God. Well, they didn't know what they were given up. Well, we hear about it all the time. But you will only, you will only receive what you believe. If you don't believe, none of this is going to matter to you because faith comes by hearing. you have to believe this for it to really count. Right. Do we dare go to Judas Iscariot and use him to establish the paradigm? Judas was a member of a ragtag and eclectic group of men and they, they followed the so-called Messiah from place to place. He had no idea that at that present time that 12 thrones were being prepared in heaven upon which he and the other 11 apostles would sit near the throne of God for all eternity. He couldn't see that. He didn't know that. All he saw was what was in front of him. But there's more to this than what you see. There's more to this than what you even know that's going on in this room. What you see is the tip of the iceberg. There's a spirit world where the unseen things of God are being revealed. Judas could only see this small group of men whom he believed would fade into the dust of history like every other religious group before them and so unhappy with his perceived insignificance Judas sold his place among the twelve his seat in heaven for thirty pieces of silver four months wage he sold it for four months wages because He was not glad about his role, his position, his title, his future. So instead of being seated adjacent to the throne of God, he was hurled headlong into the flames of hell. No one has ever turned away from God actually really knew what they were walking away from. Hebrews chapter 10 35 through 39 says cast not away therefore your confidence which hath great recompense of reward. I want to tell somebody I just feel it in the Holy Ghost. If you think it's bad now serving God wait till you get out there. And you don't have him in your life. There's somehow people begin to believe that if I go out there, things will be better. They will never be better than they are in here. Cast not away, therefore, your confidence, which hath great recompense of reward. For ye have need of patience, that after ye have done the will of God, ye might receive the promise For yet a little while, and he that shall come will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith. But if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. But we are not of them who draw back under perdition, but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. You know what? I'm more than halfway now. There's no going back for me. I'm way past the halfway point. There's no going back for me. Oprah had a dilemma. Her dilemma in that fragmented moment that was carved out of eternity was that she truly loved Naomi. But the pull of Moab, the gravitational pull of her culture, of her love for for Moab was stronger than her love for Naomi. Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5, we are we are so familiar with this, and I am glad for that. Hear, O oh Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy might. I've always firmly believed that no matter what experience an individual has with God, Through the course of their salvation, if they do not fall in love with Jesus Christ, they will not last. If they do not fall in love with the person of Jesus Christ, I don't care what they feel. I don't care what they experience. I don't care what God delivers them from. If they don't love Jesus, there will be something along the way that will convince them to go back into the world.
1: There's a misconception
0: surrounding the commandment to love God with all of our heart, all of our soul, and with all of our mind. When asked about this commandment, Jesus added to the equation. It's found in Mark 12 and 30. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. He has, it's his word. He can change might to mind if he chooses. And with all thy strength. This is the first commandment. I found myself one time saying unto the Lord that I love you, Lord, with all of my heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the Holy Ghost checked me and said, are you sure about that?
1: But there's an erroneous and false
0: assumption that the commandment to love God is mandated by an egotistical, overbearing God that demands, absolutely He demands, our affection. It may shock some of you to believe or know, to find out, that the Almighty, ever-present, omniscient, all-powerful, all-knowing God wants you to love Him. I mean... Really? You really
1: that's really you care about that?
0: He wants to be loved. I mean, God needs to be loved. He wants that. Why do you think he made man to begin with? But he also said something else. It's in John 14 15 if you love me, keep My commandments. 1 John 4 and 7. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is of God. And everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God. Now, here it is. We know that John 4, 24, God is a spirit, but here it is revealed that he is also love. The spirit of God is love. You want to know what the spirit of God is? It's love. So having said that, I feel sorry for people that are trapped in a loveless marriage because where there's no love, there is no joy. There's no love, there's no bliss, there's no gladness, there's no happiness, there's no contentment, there's no fulfillment, there's no consolation. Many of the things that we hope that we will discover and enjoy and experience through the course of our marital relationship. But the marriage contract does not, nor can it, guarantee love and affection between a Man and a woman are between a husband and a wife. You can dangle the con, You can pull it out every day and hold it up to your spouse or even read it yourself. But it's not going to guarantee that that relationship will be one based on love, respect, and affection. So God created us so that human love and devotion can only to exist When we choose it to exist. It can only exist. In accordance with our free will. Or when it is our personal choice. I cannot make you love me. And you cannot make me love you. A person can be coerced. Or physically or contractually forced. Into service. But love must
1: be voluntary.
0: Notably, the first commandment is forever coupled to the Shema or to the declaration that there is just one God. And the reason for this is because God's infinite wisdom, he knew that it would take this depth of love for a man or a woman to live for him in a broken, perverse, and corrupt world going to take that kind of love today. It really is. So within the menagerie of things that has tried to strip you away from God through the years, I'm going to tell you right now, your unmitigated love for God is the one thing, that one bond that can never be broken. First John 2.15, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. Any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away. And the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God, abideth forever. So the issue is not just to love God. It is to love him enough.
1: To love him enough. Enough
0: to serve him and that is what introduces us to the true heart of what we are going to speak to you over the next few minutes Romans 12 and 1 I beseech you therefore brethren by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice holy acceptable unto God which is your reasonable service I want to point out to you that Paul did not project God's anger, God's wrath, or God's judgment when he implored believers, this particular letter to the Roman church, when he implored them to present their bodies a living sacrifice and to commit themselves to reasonably serve the living God. His behest was made on the basis of God's mercy. Ladies and gentlemen, that's what we are here on. We are here on the basis of God's mercy. We're not ignorant and, and we're, we're very aware of, of the alternative to heaven. There's a place that is the polar opposite of heaven and streets of gold. And we don't want to go there uh, by any means. But we are here on the basis of God's mercy. God is not standing in his room, this room with his arms crossed, saying, if you don't do this, this, and this, you will go straight to hell. God is appealing to us on the basis of his mercy. When you love God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all your mind, and all of your strength. Nothing that God will require of you as a believer will seem to be unreasonable. However, in the absence of that deep, all-encompassing, all-consuming love for God, many aspects of the kingdom of God and of kingdom living will easily be ignored or dismissed because they will be perceived as unreasonable. Now, I've come to discover this on my own, that those that consider These things, to be unreasonable, also consider them to be unnecessary. I'm not proud of what I'm getting ready to tell you, but it's the truth anyway. When I was in high school, I could care less about learning anything. I wasn't interested in what was taught in history class or any other class for that matter. Two plus two is four, and that's all I need to know about math. And I want to give out special thanks, accolades to Cliff's Notes, because Cliff's Notes is what got me through high school and got me a high school diploma. Not proud of it. They should have actually put that on my diploma. But they didn't know, you see. So all I was interested in was how to pass the next test and, and how to get to the next grade. And I was good at it. I was. I was good at it. Finally got all the way through high school and did a little bit of college, and I entered college with the same attitude. But see, here's the deal. A lot of people, the reason I am being transparent with you, showing how ignorant I used to be, a lot of people all they want is for us to give them the Cliffs Notes version of the Bible. Just give us enough information to pass the test. Just give us enough information to get from here into heaven. I don't, I'm not interested in the details. It's not that I want to learn a lot along the way. I just want to know how to pass the final exam. When I took Western Civ in college, first year of college, the, the textbook was this thick. You needed a microscope to read the words. Not A magnifying glass wouldn't do it. And so all of the tests under this one professor were essay tests.
1: and yet I got a D. Never read a page.
0: So how did you fake fake it on an essay test? Well, I didn't. It, It so turned out that I took fencing that semester, my professor took fencing, and we fenced together in class every week. That's the only reason he didn't give me a big, fat F. He had mercy on me. I'm going to tell you right now, you're going to need everything in that Bible when it comes to passing the final exam. Somewhere between 45 and 50 years after Israel's exodus from Egypt, Joshua gathered the congregation of Israel together in one place, a massive group of people. And he addresses the nation who had now conquered Canaan, and they were getting ready to enter into uh, an entirely new phase of existence. And Joshua knew the people were not prepared for it. The nation of Israel was not prepared for it. And so Joshua 24 is where we find this story, picking up in verse 14. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in truth. Put away the gods which your father served on the other side of the flood and in Egypt and serve ye the Lord. It's good advice. And if it seem evil unto you to serve the Lord, we'll come back to that in a moment. Choose you this day whom ye will serve, whether the gods which your father's Served that were on the other side of the flood, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land ye dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Now, Joshua knew. Joshua knew the people were living between the lines. That's where they were living. You'd you think, are, they, are these people crazy? Are they nuts? Have they lost their mind? That, that God has brought you into a land of promise. And you're going to play with this? You're going to, you're going to, you're going to uh, treat this like it's nothing, like it's a small thing? They were living between the lines. And so Joshua knew his time on the earth was short. So he calls the people together, and he gives them an ultimatum. He didn't, he didn't tell them what to do. He says, I'm going to give you two choices.
1: He said to either
0: serve the gods of the Amorites or serve the one true living God. Make up your mind which you are going to serve. So here they are. They have to make a choice. If you want to know why the preaching of the word and the preaching of the gospel makes people uncomfortable, because it always forces us to make a choice.
1: And you've got to know that indecision is your decision.
0: I'm not going to choose today. That is your decision. It quickly became clear to Israel as Joshua spoke to them so directly and so candidly that God would no longer tolerate vacillation between two vastly different forms of worship. He would also not accept any degree of compromise, this is it. The gauntlet has been thrown down. The line has been drawn in the sand. You're either in or you're out. You're either you're going to either worship the gods of the Amorites or you're going to serve the one true living God. But you have to choose today. Can we can we sleep on it? No. Can we talk it all over among the family? No. Well, I guess so. But still, you have to decide today. But there's another aspect that Joshua's charged that complicates the situation even more. Before he charged them and told them they had to choose between the either gods of the Amorites or the true living God, he says this to them if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord. I don't know if you've ever noticed that before. If it seems evil unto you to serve the Lord, then serve the gods of the Amorites or choose to serve the one true living God. This is important on a number of, uh, number of levels. First of all, Joshua knew that their perception of serving God would be one of the main criteria for how they would make their choice.
1: I'm going to say this and I'm, maybe I shouldn't he said no.
0: cuz the book stops with him you'd be amazed at the number of people that come into our church hungry for God and they look around and see how you ladies are dressed And before the first note is played, and before the first word is preached, they made up their mind, that is not for me. I'm not going to dress that way. And they walk out the door. They already made up their mind. They're gone, not going to live for God, at least not by apostolic terms or apostolic doctrine. Now, Joshua knew that. He knew that their perception of of what it would take for them to serve the living God was going to be a a large part of how they made up their mind whom they would serve. We read it a while ago in Romans 12 and 1, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercy of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice unto the Lord, holy, acceptable, which is your reasonable service. The King James Bible renders the words of Joshua, if it seem evil to you, but the Amplified Bible says this, if it is unacceptable in your sight to serve the Lord. See, now we're getting down to the nitty-gritty today. In other words, if living under the statutes and the mandates and the laws of God are unacceptable to you, then Serve the God of the Amorites. What in the world is going on? On the surface it looks like Joshua would understand if they decided to serve idols and it looked like he would even condone their decision to serve idols or to serve the gods and the Amorites. but we know that this cannot possibly be true so what in the world is happening here? It's not like we pray with people in the altar, and say, hey man, if, if this is too hard for you, just go on back and do drugs. I mean, if, if living for God's too much, to, if you perceive this as too constrictive, restrictive, then go ahead out there and get drunk. We don't tell people that. But that's what Joshua just said. But Joshua remembered what, what Moses had said back in Deuteronomy 28 when they were still in the wilderness, because thou servest not the Lord thy God with joyfulness and with gladness of heart for the abundance of all things. The repercussions are in verse 48, Therefore shalt thou serve thine enemies, which the Lord shall send against thee in hunger and in thirst and in nakedness and one of all things, and he shall put a yoke of iron upon thy neck until he hath destroyed thee. See, the people thought that as long as they dotted all of the I's and they crossed all of the T's of the ceremonial law, that that would satisfy God, but they really didn't know God. Joshua knew that if the people did not serve the Lord with joyfulness and if he did not, they did not serve him with gladness, that God would not accept their sacrifice. David understood this very well after his uh, sinful act with Bathsheba. In his repentance, he said this in Psalms 51, 16 through 19. For thou desirest not sacrifice, else would I give it. Thou delightest not in burnt offering. You know what he's saying? Hey, listen, I could run down to the... Right now, and have the priest offer some sacrifices, throw some bullocks on the altar, heat it up, man, shed that blood, and walk away thinking that everything is all right. But he said, I know God would not accept that. That may be required, but there's going to be, there's going to take more than that for me to be forgiven. He says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. Do good in thy good pleasure unto Zion. Build thou the walls of Jerusalem. Then shalt thou be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offerings and with whole burnt offering. Then shall they offer bullocks upon thine altar. I imagine we could convince just about everybody here that hasn't been baptized to get baptized if we pulled out a 45 caliber and held it to the temples. But you think you would receive remission of sin? No. The act is the same. The name of Jesus would be spoken over you and you would come up wet. But this is lost as when you went down into the water. No. You have to want this. You have to desire this. The story of Esau is uh, somewhat disconcerting. It's found in Genesis 25, 31. Jacob said, sell me thy, this day thy birthright. You know, if, if, you ha- if, if you could come up with enough money, I would sell you my truck. I would. I would. I would sell you my my wife's car.
1: Boy, did I feel that coming back at me. (laughs) They call all the time, would you sell your home?
0: Give me enough money, I will, yeah, yeah. But there are things that I will not sell. My wife being one of them. Bree being one of them. John being one of them. My soul being one of them. My salvation. There are a lot of things that are not for sale. Because I'm happily married. I love my family. I love the people of God. I love Jesus. I love my salvation. You don't sell the things that you truly love because those things are not replaceable. Verse 32, Esau said, Behold, I am at the point to die. He's exaggerating, by the way. And what profit shall this birthright do to me? Jacob said, Swear to me this day. And he swore unto him, and he sold his birthright unto Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and pottage of lentils, and he did eat and drink, and rose up and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. He despised It turns out that Esau wanted the material blessings. He wanted the paternal power that came with the birthright, but he wanted the authority, but he did not want the responsibility that rested upon his shoulders as being the firstborn. See, a lot of people welcome the virtues and the blessings. That come with salvation, but they despise or let me say resent the mandates of faithfulness, holiness, and separation. Oh, give me the blessing. Oh, lay hands on me when I'm sick. Oh, pray with me when I'm going through a trial or a tribulation. But they resent the mandates that rest upon every man, woman, boy, and girl that's born again into the kingdom of God. You better get more than the cliff notes because you're going to be judged by what's written in that book. God is not drawn to the Esau's of the kingdom. He's drawn to those that enjoy his presence. If prayer is a drudgery, you haven't fallen in love yet. If worship is a drudgery, you haven't fallen in love yet. If reading the Word is a drudgery, then you haven't fallen in love yet. My God. My God. 2 Corinthians 9 and 7. I have to hurry. Every man according as he purposeth in his heart. So let him give not grudgingly or of necessity for God loveth a cheerful giver. The Greek word for uh, cheerful is hilaros from which we get the word hilarious. Doesn't mean that you're supposed to be hilariously giddy when you give. It's not it doesn't mean that at all. But even if I don't want to say you, let's just hypothetically, a person is the highest contributor in a local church. If that person, regardless of the huge amount of money they give to the church, is resentful about about having to give, then they will miss the greatest blessing that is involved in giving. That person will profit from the law of sowing and reaping, even though they don't enjoy giving because the law of sowing and reaping, it's a spiritual law that cannot be reversed or refuted. But God does not just love the giver. God loves the cheerful giver. He does not just love the biggest giver. He loves the cheerful giver. So gladness in giving garners you two things. First, the affection of God and secondly, his full attention. Just be glad. Just be glad about it. I got to thinking one day, you know, when we first started tithing, it was a chore. we didn't have any extra money. And yet we decided they were going to do it anyway. And after we started tithing, we had more money. It's just God's principle, folks. It's not math. It's it's a principle, spiritual principle. But I got to thinking. I mean, the money that we have saved from not buying jewelry, makeup, booze,
1: beauty salon, uh, did I leave anything out? Bikini... <laughs>
0: I mean, the money we have saved. I heard a lady call into to Dave Ramsey one time, and she was asking his advice. She was an older lady. And she, in the conversation came out, she had smoked for 40 years. And he did some calculations. The price of a pack of cigarettes 40 years before this, and I don't know how this man did this. He graduated in but. He calculated, she, she smoked like three or four packs a day. He said, if you have taken that same money and invested it, he said, you know how much money you would have today? She goes, no, try $9 million. I'm glad about giving. My wife comes home with a new outfit. I'm just happy as a lark. Because she always walks in and says, you want to know how much money I saved you? <laughs> I got I got to close. I'm already in trouble, so might as well. Oh, well, Luke said, actually Jesus said it in Luke 6.38, given it shall be given unto you, good measure pressed down, shaken together, running over, shall men give into your bosom. For with the same measure that ye meet, with all of it shall be measured to you again. Musicians, would you... Come and back me up on the platform. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, this is not talking about the amount of giving. It's talking about the spirit with which you give, the attitude with which you give. That's the way God will measure his blessing back to you. So the benefit of gladness, is many, and it cannot be denied. David wrote this Psalm 122 and 1, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. You see, he didn't say I was glad, and there's nothing wrong with this, but he didn't say I'm, I was glad when they said our tea time is 1 o'clock. He said I was glad. I, I was actually glad, relieved. I was happy about it when they said, let's go to the house of the Lord. This explains why David... Uh, danced before the ark when they brought the ark of God out of Obed-Edom's house into the city of Jerusalem. In fact, the Bible says in 2 Samuel 6 and 12 uh, that David, uh, uh, because of the ark of God, so David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom into the city of David with what? With gladness. Verse 14, David danced before the Lord with all his might. Now I did a little jig over here this morning when we were worshiping God, but it wasn't really with all of my might. I can't really say that, but David danced with all his might. I'm gonna tell you when he got home, he was tuckered out. He gave every night. He he gave it all. The Bible says he was girded with a linen ephod, and David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the trumpet. See, every time the Lord enters among his people, every time his presence is manifest among his people, he ought to be greeted with the sound of thanksgiving, with the sound of praise, and with the sound of worship. Praise God. Praise God. Not ought to be, oh, oh, he's here. Oh, you're here. Oh, Or just ignore the fact that Jesus is in the room and, and figure that all these people are acting this way when he's a million miles. No, they're acting this way because Jesus is in the room. And I've always heard that angels can't sing with us. Hogwash. Who said angels can't sing with us? Listen to this, Revelation 7, verse 11. And all the angels stood round about the throne and about the elders and the four beasts and fell before the throne on their faces and worshiped God. Wow. Saying amen, blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power, and might be unto our God forever and ever. You think the angels don't sing with us? You think there's not a choir that sings among us when we praise the Lord? Oh, you're wrong, my friend. They sing right along with us. They may not be able to sing about the blood or about the cross or about redemption or about salvation, but when it comes to worship, You couldn't shut them up if you tried. Psalms 95 and 1. Oh, come, let us sing unto the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. I love those two words, joyful and noise. They go together, a joyful noise. Praise God. Hallelujah. I don't want to just make uh, my lips move. I want God to hear my praise. I don't want to just speak silently or quietly. I want to let God hear my worship. I want there to be a joyful noise in the sanctuary. Psalms 98 and 4. Make a joyful noise unto the Lord all the earth. Make a loud noise and rejoice and sing praise. Praise. There's a difference between noise and joyful noise. The Hebrew word for joyful is ruah. You know what it means? It means a shout of victory. A shout of triumph. There were two shouts that were made when Israel went to battle. First was as they prepared to enter the battlefield, there was a shout among the army of Israel that would go forth, but there was also a shout after they won the battle, they would gather around and they would shout unto the Lord because God had caused them to triumph over their enemy. I'm going to shout before the battle and I'm going to shout after the battle, but there's going to be a shout of victory and triumph that will go forth from my lips. You say, I haven't won the battle yet. Go ahead and shout anyway. Because you know what that'll do? It'll tell God, I trust you. I trust you, Lord. You're going to bring me through. I'm going to walk upon serpents and scorpions. I'm going to shout the victory. If you're a miserable Christian, if you resent the standards of holiness, you're not utterly thrilled and glad to be in the house of God this morning. We need to pray for you. When I worked at Builder Square years ago, Chris Wright, one of the assistant managers, would come in every day. He'd just walk up and down the aisles. I'm just glad to be here. I'll never forget this guy here. I'm just glad to be here. There's a lot of places I I don't want to be, but I'm glad to be here. Hallelujah. You gotta be glad about this. You gotta be happy about this. You gotta be joyful about this. This has got to be the best thing that ever happened to you. Come on, let's gather and worship. Let's gather and be glad. You might be going through hell, but not right
1: now.